Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Content warning. Check the show notes for more information. It's April 7th, 1739. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. So it was on this day that dashing, noble, swashbuckling English highwayman Dick Turpin was executed at the age of 34 for stealing horses. In reality, he wasn't a gentleman robber. He was a brutal murderer, rapist, and by all accounts, massive arsehole. <laughs> because whilst the date and manner of his death are accurately recalled, almost everything else in the popular imagination has been glamorised. And that even goes as far as to where he was executed. I think if you asked anyone where he was executed, they might say Tyburn, if they'd said anything at all, which right. is a famous gallows in London. But he wasn't executed there. He was executed at Knavesmire Gallows in York. It comes with two ironies, his method and location of execution. The first is that having been sentenced to death for stealing horses, he was executed at a racetrack. And irony, the second is that Turpin's hangman, Thomas Hadfield, was a former highwayman himself. So he was sort of fairly literally hoist by his own petard. Yeah, York didn't have a full-time executioner. So there was a custom that if a condemned man agreed to perform the office, he, his life would be spared. And that's what Hadfield had done. Although, according to an account in the Gentleman's Magazine, which isn't as racy as it sounds, Turpin actually threw himself off the scaffold unaided. He did, indeed, yes. The quote is, spoke a few words to the topsman, then threw himself off and expired in five minutes. And that's important because that was seen as being courageous. You know, people were used to seeing executions. Most people, whoever they were, whatever they'd done, whatever bravado they'd shown, when the moment came, might need someone to push them off or certainly Mm. would squirm around in pain and it would all be quite horrible. Turpin seemed like pretty much to jump for it, seemed quite willing to make his end by his own rules, and as such had bought a new frock and shoes for the occasion, and waved and bowed to the crowd as he was led to the gallows. Yeah, and I think the eye-catching manner of his execution contributed to his renown. He wasn't the most famous outlaw of the day. Most of the people who would have been considered the most famous in the 18th century are people we've never heard of today. But possibly in part because of his performance at his execution, he quickly became the subject of a biographical pamphlet, which, by the way, was highly inaccurate and the source of some of the myths that persist to this day about Turpin. And then on from there, William Harrison Ainsworth's 1834 novel Rockwood was the other source of mythology about him. And that book casts him as this dashing highwayman who was outwitting corrupt authorities and performing robberies with a sort of gentlemanly flourish. And of course, none of that was true, as Ollie said. But his career actually started in a fairly mundane way. He was born to an alehouse keeper and he apprenticed as a butcher. And this offered him an early direction in his career, obviously, but also a route into crime because it was quite common for 
butchers to deal in poached meat. And that was certainly the case for Turpin, who was purchasing uh, venison that had been poached from nearby Epping Forest from criminals known as the Essex Gang. And he then began poaching himself alongside them. And police came to offer a reward of £50, which was the equivalent of about £12,000 for information leading to not just his arrest, but their arrest. And gradually, as his notoriety and infamy grew, this pushed the group to become more violent. What I couldn't quite get my head around was why the gang would want a butcher on their side at all. It makes sense if you're trying to sell on some dodgy deer carcasses that you want someone on the inside to put it over his counter. That makes sense. And it makes sense that he'd make friends with them and then say, can I come? But I couldn't quite Mm. work out why they'd say yes. Like, why would you want a butcher on your poaching expedition? But I guess... That knowledge of butchery maybe was useful for identifying the valuable livestock, perhaps knowing how best to dispatch them. You know, he was going to be the guy ultimately selling them. And after a few years, he actually gave up his butcher business and opened an ale house himself like his father had. So I think that sort of functions at a bit of a gang HQ for them. But I think it seems like he certainly had a taste for the criminal activity. They were really, really brazen. I mean, I know it was harder to be caught then because they didn't have a lot of technology to try and track you down. But, you know, they were striking all around Essex and East London pretty much with impunity. In one incident, they broke into a widow's house and after they'd stolen from her, they hung around in the house for hours eating meat and drinking her drink before they buggered off. And it was really horrible to be the victim of one of his crimes as well. He poured boiling water over a farmer. He raped a woman. He threatened an old lady that he'd throw her onto a fire. According to the London Evening Post of February the 6th, 1735, he said to an old woman he was robbing, quote, God damn your blood, you old bitch. If you won't tell us, I'll set your ass on the grate. I mean, he was only after, as you would say, money, but also like wine and food. There's really no need to be quite so horrific, apart from he obviously took pleasure in scaring people. But also contrary to his mythos, he and the gang really weren't stopping many stagecoaches, but they tended to rob individuals who had strayed off the path alone. And he was also robbing farmhouses because they were remote and easy pickings. And they were the kinds of places that, as you were saying, Ollie, people could just linger around. You'd done your crime and you could, you know, hoover up whatever food and ale you wanted before getting on your way. Even if he had been doing highway robberies, the idea of highway robbery as a romantic crime is something that has to evolve once that practice has died out, right? I mean, at the time, it was the equivalent of mugging. It wasn't remotely romantic to be held up on the road. And actually, when he did do some sort of proper highway robbing, if you like, he teamed up with one of the more famous Blackheath robbers Tom King he ended up killing him during a botched robbery which was an accident he wasn't even that competent at the uh, highwayman stuff. Yeah, and I mean, this led to a milestone incident in Turpin's career, which is until then he'd been wanted for these, you know, robberies and burglaries, etc. But as he fled the scene of the King shooting, he, he fled into Epping Forest, which was sort of where he w- would always go to lie low. And a forester's servant attempted to apprehend him at gunpoint, and Turpin shot and killed him, which instantly made him one of England's most wanted, you know, because the servant had been trying to apprehend a wanted criminal. And so now he had a reward of two. £200 on his head. Which is probably why the myth reports that he did a midnight ride to York all in one fell swoop. Well, I looked this up and did a little bit of internet-based calculation, and according to the internet, a horse can travel 100 miles in a day if it's a fit endurance competitor, but a typical trail horse in good shape can travel about 50 miles a day at a brisk walk and with a few water breaks. So basically to do a 150-mile ride from London to York, it would be two to three days minimum rather other than this epic (laughs) one-night thing that the stories recount. But how Turpin was caught is incredible. It's the best Mm -hmm. bit of the story. So he fled to Yorkshire and then assumed the name John Palmer. 
because uh, obviously mm-hmm. he didn't want to go around being called Dick Turpin. He wasn't that stupid, although he was stupid, as we'll find out. He then was arrested in 1738 for disturbing the peace. I mean, that's mistake number one. His offence, shooting a chicken in the street. Like, his mm. whole story <laughs> unfolded because, as I said earlier, he was an asshole. Well, it wasn't just any old chicken. It was John Robinson's Gamecock. And this was a hunting associate of Dick Turpin, now known as John Palmer. It was presumably some sort of pointed thing that he was uh, killing his prized pet slash money earner. And Robinson responded angrily, and Turpin then threatened to kill him, which brought the incident to the attention of three local justices, at which point, apparently, Turpin was committed to the House of Correction at Beverly. Yeah, and they were quickly able to connect him with a string of horse thefts in the area, and he in mind that horse theft at this time was a capital offence, so this was no small potatoes. And so obviously now, backed into a corner, Turpin wrote to his sister's husband, who had the fantastic name Pompadour Rivernal, but Rivernal refused to pay the postage because he, quote, had no correspondent in York. So, I mean, it's hard to know whether they genuinely mm. didn't know he was there or whether the brother-in-law had just had it's enough like, of Dick Turpin by this point. Yeah. But the important thing is that the letter then remained unopened and unclaimed at the post office. Oh, let me do this bit. Let me do this go bit. On, go on, go <laughs> on. So wild. Where it turned out that the village postmaster, Mr. Smith, was also the village schoolmaster who saw this coming and had taught Turpin as a boy and recognised his writing. (laughs) It's amazing. It's weird, isn't it? Because, like, all old handwriting looks alike to us. It's crazy to try and think that someone would look and be like, that's Dick Turpin's handwriting. But I guess Dick Turpin was famous, wasn't he? Or I suppose notorious is probably the right word. And there was a price on his head which Smith knew, and maybe he did know that it was Turpin's brother-in-law who lived in the village. So maybe it's not so ridiculous. Maybe he was on alert for it. But even so, it's incredible. Like, having seen that smoking gun, he could then say to the authorities, this is Turpin, this is his pseudonym, he's in the Beverly House of Correction in Yorkshire, go hang him. It's just too wild. It's incredible. And he accompanied the arresting officers to York in order to positively identify him and claim the reward. The charge sheet said that he stole the three horses at Welton on the 1st of March in 1739, but by all accounts, obviously he did that crime, but it actually occurred at Heckington in August of 1738, which would have rendered the charges invalid. I mean, to be fair, Turpin did not have a great defence attorney. It was Dick Turpin. You were supposed to basically call your own witnesses, present your own defence. And he, I mean, even though on the day of his execution, as we've heard, he was really calm and collected, there's a note of panic that comes through in the accounts of the trial. You know, he keeps saying, like, I want to be tried in Essex and they won't let him go because he's only being tried for these horse thefts. There's no highway robbery in there at all. So he's being tried for crimes in York, you know, and he says he needs to call these witnesses. These witnesses haven't come to testify to his character. And you can almost feel the sweat through the transcripts. I hope that he kept throwing to his pseudonymous lawyer, John Palmer, and <laughs> putting on a funny moustache. <laughs> I'll take it from here. <laughs> Objection, Your Honour. <laughs> Tomorrow. Somewhat biased French art experts to say, well, it's probably from about, you know, 400 BC. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash retrospectors part of the ACAST Creator Network.